Good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 21 through 23 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 983. As always, I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll commence our study together. Let's pray. Lord, once more we thank you for a beautiful Sunday morning to gather together as a church family and to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to worship you in in spirit and in truth. And I pray that your spirit would minister to ours as we interact with your word now, that you would help us to understand today's text, that you would help us to integrate it into our lives. Pray for those who are away from us this weekend and are now watching via the live stream. Would you bless them, Lord? Bring them back safe and sound. We pray, Lord, that in all that we do this morning, in our teaching and fellowship and worship, that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Irving Stone was an author who spent most of his life writing biographical novels about the world's most famous men. His books included uh, monographs on Michelangelo, Vincent van Gogh, Sigmund Freud, Abraham Lincoln, and many others. And Stone was once asked if he had found a common thread running through the lives of these great men. And here's how he replied. He said, quote, I write about people who sometime in their lives had a vision of something that should be accomplished, and they go to work. They are beaten over the head, knocked down, vilified. But every time they're knocked down, they stand up. You cannot destroy these people. And at the end of their lives, they've accomplished what they set out to do. And my friends, as members of the church, God has called us to greatness. Not in the worldly sense of the term, but in the sense that he has called us out of the kingdom of darkness and moved us into the kingdom of his son. Or as Pastor Alan Cairns would say, he's called us from the dunghill to sit in the royal courts. God has also given us a charge. He has called us to persevere in our faith To the very end. Even when we're being beaten over the head. Even when we're being knocked down and vilified. In fact, so important is our perseverance in the faith that God has made the fulfillment of his promises to us in some sense contingent upon it. And we're going to see this together in today's text. Let's begin in verse 21. Here the Apostle Paul sets things up by simply reminding us of what we were before God called us to himself. Paul offers three descriptive words. He says, you were once alienated from God. That means before God called us to himself into his church, we were separated from God. We had no fellowship at all with him. And friends, this was our state from the very moment of our conception. Psalm 58 verse 3 says we are estranged from the womb. And that's because from the time of, con- of conception, we bear the corruption of our first parent, Adam. His sin is reckoned as ours. His sinful nature passes on to us. And so that from the very moment of conception right on through, we are truly sinners by nature 
and by choice. The consequence of being separated from God, or excuse me, the the consequence of our sin is separation from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. So that is what we were. We were people with no God in our lives. His second description is that we were hostile in mind. Now, this was a manifestation of our moral corruption. We were born without God, and we had a disposition to continue our lives without God. Or to have substitute gods, or to make ourselves to be God. But whether we would articulate it or not this way, we were repugnant to the very idea of having our lives governed by the true and living God. And then there's a third description here. He says, we were also doing evil deeds. In other words, we had dedicated ourselves to a way of life which was consistent with our godlessness. A life controlled by malice and greed and envy and jealousy and pride and a hundred other vices. But friends, this, this is who we were. Every one of us, separated from God, hostile in mind, committed to evil deeds. But friends, by the grace of God, that is not who we are today. We're different today. Look at the next part in verse 22. He says, we who were once that way, he has now reconciled. Notice the actor in that statement. It is God who has done the work. He has reconciled us to himself. That means we who were once alienated from God now enjoy full communion with God. We who were once hostile in mind toward God are now lovers of God. And we who were once dedicated to evil deeds now have a a longing for godliness. God has done an incredible thing for us. He He has changed our very hearts. In fact, so profound is this change that Jesus describes it as being born again or reborn. The Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians as becoming new creations in Christ. And later in the book of Colossians as becoming new men. Once we were without God and content to be so. But then God took action. And now as a result, we are in communion with him. It's a tremendous change that has been wrought. Now, how did God effect this change? Well, look at the second part of verse 22. It says, He has now reconciled us, here's how, in His body of flesh by His death. This is talking about the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So God effected this change by sending His Son into the world. His Son earned the merit that we lacked. And on the cross, His Son made an atonement for the sins that we had committed. So that now, now Christ and His righteousness and blood could be applied to us. And our fellowship with God could be established. 
Friends, Christ's righteousness and blood are applied to us the very moment we receive Him, which is done by repentance and faith, or repentant faith. Two sides of one coin. As a result, all of our sins are forgiven, a new relationship with God is established, and we become a part of the church of Christ. We are moved from the kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of greatness. And friends, it doesn't end with this either. Our text today tells us that God has a long-term plan for us. Let's look at the second part of verse 22. It says, He has reconciled us through the person and work of Christ in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Now, looking at similar texts elsewhere in the New Testament, I think we can conclude here that Paul has the last judgment in mind. So the Scriptures teach that at the the end of the present age, there will be a resurrection of the just and of the unjust. And a final separation will take place. Those who know not God will be cast out into outer darkness, while those who are in fellowship with God through faith, they shall be welcomed by Him into His eternal kingdom. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying, that God has done a work through Christ for us such that we have now become part of His church. And that is a wonderful thing to have right now, life Knowing Christ, knowing God, being a part of His body, it's an incredible life. But even beyond that, His goal for us is that at the end of history, as we stand before that throne of judgment, that God should look at His church, the church of Christ, and He should say they are holy, without blame, not chargeable with any offense, and therefore qualified to enter His eternal kingdom. See, that is the end goal of it all. So what the Apostle Paul has done here in the first couple of verses in our text is to walk through the whole sweep of salvation. Beginning the moment that our salvation was secured by Christ, And then our present experience of now being reconciled to God through repentant faith. And then he takes us into the future and says, and here's the goal that God has for all of this. It's to welcome you into his eternal kingdom, all of your sins forgiven, perfect righteousness on your account. The whole sweep of it is here. It's an incredible reality that we all get to contemplate But friends, you will notice in verse 23 that there is a contingency clause here. And we do not want to miss this. It says, you were once alienated, but now you are reconciled. In one day you will enter his kingdom if, there's the conditional, if, if what? If positively, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And then negatively, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, 
which, he adds, has now been proclaimed in all the world and which Paul himself had embraced and become a minister. So God has a wonderful plan for us that will culminate in eternal life and glory, but there is a sense in which that future is contingent upon our perseverance, our continuance in the faith, and our refusal to shift from the gospel. Now let's consider each of these parts in turn now. First, the positive side. This will all be ours if we continue in the faith. Now friends, the gospel message is very simple. You know this. So simple that the Apostle Paul can, can summarize it in a single sentence. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, This is the gospel message, that Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He died and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay, there it is, encapsulated in one sentence, the gospel message. But do you understand that that? Underneath that simple message, there is a thick bedrock of important doctrines. Doctrines that the gospel will not make sense without. For example, there are doctrines regarding God and the scriptures. For the gospel to make sense, we must believe that God is really there. That He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that He has spoken to us through His Word. And that the Scriptures that we hold in our hands are the unerring, authoritative, trustworthy record of His will for us. You must believe that because the Gospel says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There's also doctrine concerning us and our sin. The Gospel says Christ died for our sins. We must understand that humanity was created in holiness under the law of its maker, but by voluntary transgression, our first parents fell from their holy state. And as a result, all humanity now is guilty of sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and there is nothing that we can do to self-remedy. There's also the doctrine of Christ. The message of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. We must know that Christ was not a a mere man, not, not just a great teacher from ages ago. Instead, He was the very eternal Son of God, whom God the Father sent into this world, giving Him a full human nature on top of His divine nature, so that now in the one person we had both, really God, really man, in the one person. And that this was the one that God had promised from ages ago to be our Savior. Friends, to make sense of the gospel, we have to understand Christ's death. The gospel message says Christ died for our sins. His death wasn't like any of our deaths. His death on the cross was an act of atonement for our sins. He had committed no sins of his own. He didn't need to die. It was for our sakes. Christ's death was a voluntary, obedient, ransoming victorious act, fully sufficient to secure the salvation of all who would believe in Him. 
And friends, the gospel also includes truth about Christ's resurrection. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. We must believe that Christ was in the tomb for three days, but on that third day, he rose literally and bodily from the grave, which is the proof that the penalty of sin was fully paid, proof that he was God-man and not mere man. My friends, you see, the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, and yet it is also incredibly robust. There is a whole system of teachings that must be understood for that one sentence to make any sense to us. And then, out of this system of doctrines, there arises a distinctive way of life as well. The faith is not just maintaining orthodoxy, right doctrines, but it's also orthopraxy, right practice, right living in response to the doctrines. First and most important obligation we have to the gospel is, Mark 1.15, repent and believe. In Acts 22.16, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. In Romans 10, verse 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And altogether, my friends, the, the doctrine and the way of life that flows out of that doctrine, that together as a composite constitutes the faith. So when Paul says... Here is God's plan for you. Here's what he's done through Christ. Here's what he's done for you now. Here's his great goal for you in the future. And this will be yours if you continue in the faith. What he means is this will be yours if you maintain all of the doctrines and duties of the gospel from the moment you first believe right through to the last breath that you take. Perseverance is necessary to obtain the final prize. And then the negative side of it, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What does this mean? Well, in Colossae, there were all these false teachers. And they were coming to the church and they were advocating their systems of thought. And we've discussed these before You'll remember that they included human traditions and and human philosophies. They included things like uh, the, the requirement to worship angels, new dietary restrictions, all of these things. And the the Colossian church was being told that they would not uh, truly have a right relationship with God until they had adopted all of this stuff in addition to the gospel. Well, friends, the reality of the matter was that if they adopted those things, they would have to jettison the gospel. Those teachings were not compatible with the gospel of Christ. Let's just take one of them as an example. The, the, in, the necessity, according to the false teachers, of worshiping angels. Well, to worship angels is to make gods of them. And what an affront that would be to the true and living God. To worship them would imply that our salvation was somehow their doing. 
when it was really all the work of Christ to add the worship of angels to the worship of God in Christ would be to minimize the identity of Christ, who he is, and to minimize the work of Christ, suggesting it wasn't all his work that saved us. There were others involved in our salvation. You see, you could not have the gospel and worship angels on top of it. The two contradicted each other. Now, the Church of Colossae was very tempted to adopt these uh, systems of thought and these practices because they were receiving a, a lot of pressure about it. They were being told, look, if you don't do this, you won't know God as you are. He won't be properly disposed towards you. They were even saying to the church, if you don't do this, you'll lose our respect. Right? We'll judge you if you don't do these things. They felt that pressure. And so Paul is writing to say, listen, you received the gospel. You've got it. You know the doctrines of the gospel. You know how we're supposed to respond to the gospel. And from the time your church was constituted to now, you've done a great job. But understand, doing great up to this point isn't good enough. You've got to get now from where you are here right to the very end. You cannot lose the gospel. Hold on to it with every fiber of your being and see the false teachings around you for what they are. False. They'll lead you away from Christ. They will not enhance your relationship with Christ. They will disqualify you. They will not add qualifications to you when you stand before that judgment seat. Now, friends, in the same way we modern Western Christians face an onslaught of competing worldviews and I've named these in weeks past. We are confronted with scientism. Not science, but scientism, which is attributing ultimate authority to man-made theories, rising them above the settled teachings of God's Word. We've talked about the sexual revolution, which demands a way of life that is utterly, utterly contrary to the way of life given to us by Christ. We've talked about cultural Marxism and how it is based on a materialistic outlook on life. And it looks through the, at the whole world through the lens of oppressors and oppressed. All of these things are incompatible with the Christian gospel. To embrace any of these things would require you to jettison some of the doctrines that you have already received. My friends, we must not do this. To reach the finish line, we must say no to these false teachings. Friends, beyond all of the external forces that could shift us from the gospel, there are also the internal forces. Look, we've still got these sin natures, don't we? We are new creatures in Christ, but the old creature is still lingering on. We are not yet fully made perfect, nor will we be until we meet God face to face. Our sinful natures are really good at leading us away from the gospel. They're really good at at helping us to rationalize our sinful choices. And then there's the threat of our, our pride, which craves the approval of the prevailing culture. There, there's our internal desire for self-preservation, which tempts us to abandon Christ when persecution begins to set in. Friends, there are so many threats to us as we make this Christian journey but if we are to receive the prize at the end, we must persevere right to the very end. See, friends, sometimes in the scriptures, the Christian life is compared to a race. 
We're all in this race. The thing about races is they don't give a medal to somebody who quits halfway through. You've got to get to the end to receive your trophy. And in the same way, we Christians must continue in the faith, not being shifted from the hope of the gospel right on through to the end. God doesn't give his kingdom to those who professed faith, went a quarter mile down the track, and then stepped off. Or those who lost sight of the finish line and wandered away. It goes to those who persevere. Now, friends, is the Apostle Paul teaching salvation by works here? Well, not at all. Paul has just explained in our text that salvation is God's work. He's the one who reconciled us. Besides that, Paul also told us in Romans 3.28 that we are justified by faith, apart from our works. And in Ephesians 2.8-9, he says, it's by grace that we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. No, Paul is not teaching here salvation by our works. Well, friends, is, is Paul teaching that our salvation can be won and lost? That maybe God reconciles us to himself, gets us going on the race, and then somehow we disqualify ourselves by running away? No, Paul is not teaching that we can lose a salvation once possessed either. Remember, it's Paul who wrote Romans 8.29. This says, Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. There is this unbroken chain. All predestined will be called. All called will go right on through to glorification. Paul taught the eternal security of the believer. So no, Paul is not teaching salvation by works here. He is not teaching that salvation can be won and then lost. Well, what is he teaching then? Friends, Paul is teaching us that we are saved by grace alone, through repentant faith alone, in Christ alone, and that once saved, we are always saved. But at the same time, true saving faith is a persevering faith. True saving faith is a persevering faith. You see, true faith arises from a God-wrought change in our hearts. And that change is permanent, not temporary. Furthermore, once a believer, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. And that Spirit, once He comes, does not depart from us. He stays there guaranteeing our continuance in the faith. Also, the Scriptures teach that the, the, the person who responds in saving faith is united to Christ, becomes a part of His own body, the church. And it's unthinkable that Christ should sever His body from Himself. No, once united to Christ, you are united forever. Friends, what we are seeing here is one of those passages of Scripture in which divine sovereignty and human responsibility mysteriously intersect. We find this in a number of places in Scripture. 
We find it here. That our salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. He predestines us. He calls us. He justifies us. He will glorify us. He, he does the work. And yet, he also tells us that we must work. After we have come to him in repentant faith, we must, in the words of Philippians 2, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, the full passage is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. You see, true saving faith is a persevering faith. It is a God-wrought and God-maintained faith. God will do the work. He will guarantee our perseverance, even as he gives us the responsibility to persevere. Now, friends, I believe this passage confronts us with several important questions. Number one, have you come to a proper understanding of the gospel message? And of all of the doctrines which make sense of that message? This is where Paul's text began. We must continue in the faith. So, have you understood the faith? Do you understand what, what the Scriptures teach us about God and about the Scriptures themselves? Do you understand what it teaches us about Christ and us? About the death of Christ and how it atones for our sins Have you understood the duty of the gospel to repent of sin and trust in Christ? In fact, that is my second question. Have you responded to the message that you have understood? Have you seen that that God has made a provision for you through Christ and that His provision matches exactly your personal need? He has righteousness that you lack. He has a payment for sins that you need. Have you responded to that in faith? Question three, if you've done that, are you keeping your eyes fixed on that finish line? Are you resolved by God's grace to let nothing push you off that track? Whether the threats are external or internal, Question four, are you taking full advantage of all the means of grace to keep you on track? See, God has given us resources designed to to ensure our perseverance. He's given us his written word. He's given us the local church. He's given us prayer and the regular observance of the Lord's Supper, all of which call us to continually examine ourselves, keep pressing forward in the Christian life. Question five, my friends, when you hear passages like this one with its conditional statement, God wants to acquit you at his judgment seat, but it must, but but for that to happen, you must continue in the faith until then. When you hear those kinds of statements, does it give you the motivation you need to stay faithful? Because, friends, that's what it's there for. Here was the church of Colossae. They had started out well. They'd embraced the the true faith. They'd been holding on to it for a time, but now their faith is shaken. All of these competing worldviews crashing in on them, and they're, they're not sure how to respond. 
Well, Paul gives this warning to them as the motivation they need. He motivated them with Christ. Remember how great he is. Why would you want to leave Christ? But now the warning. If you fall away, it means your faith wasn't the real deal, and you'll be disqualified from the race. You'll lose your reward. Friends, when you hear those warnings, does it motivate you? Do you feel yourself thinking, I don't want to miss all that God has for me? I don't want to miss it. I don't want to let my own sin nature run me off the racetrack. I, I don't want to be so blind to the danger of false teachings that I end up embracing them and destroy the gospel in the process. D- does it motivate you to keep going? That's what it's there for. See, God has ordained that He should so work in us that when we read these passages, we will continue on in the faith. There's no chance that someone who has really believed will ever fail. So have you really believed in Him? Friends, let this passage do its work in you because this is how we will all finish our race. Let's close in prayer now. Father, we thank You for the time that You've given to us. Pray that You would um, allow the, these words to sink down deeply into our heart, Lord. We, we see this wonderful paradox Lord, where you are sovereign over every aspect of our salvation, and yet you still give us the responsibility to persevere in the faith, making contingent the final outcome on it. Lord, we know we can only persevere by your power, so, Lord, would you give us the spiritual enablement that we need? Would you give us minds that are discerning so we are not led away by false teachings? Lord, would you protect us from our own sinful natures so that we would not... Choose a life that is at variance with the gospel and thus make shipwreck of our faith. Lord, would you keep us on this track all the way through. You've given us a high calling, Lord. You've called us to greatness. Lord, we want to see this through to the end. We want to be a part of your eternal kingdom. Lord, let it be so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.